Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all here and just such a delight to have been able to share this weekend with you thus far. For those of you that were there last night, we had a good time diving into a number of issues related to the authority of Scripture and its reliability. And, and now we do continue on uh, in our First uh, Corinthians text today, though. Before we get, though, let me just say a few comments of thanks. I, it's been such a delight just to meet so many folks here. I've seen some old friends and, and people I haven't seen in a while, and I really appreciate that testimony a minute ago by the young man who's on the college campus here and benefited from some of my books. I speak a lot of places. I've never heard anything like that, so thank you. That's uh, very encouraging to me. I, I'm, I'm not that different than most of you who do ministry in some capacity. You probably wonder, does anything I do make any difference at all? Um, we all ask that question, including me. So that testimony uh, is a great uh, encouragement uh, as I get to share our time with you uh, today. Well, let's turn our attention to what God has to say in his word. And as was mentioned, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, as Paul did come to Charlotte not long ago and talk to me about this series, uh, he told me they were in this series in 1 Corinthians. And I think, wow, this really worked out great. Because uh, providentially, I think I might have a sermon that would fit really well uh, for this weekend. And it does come from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. As we turn our attention there, uh, you know the setting, of course, of 1 Corinthians, and I'll, I'll pull back a little bit later and, and say some more about that. But I want to read just one verse today from this passage. Uh, we're going to talk about more verses than one, so make sure you keep your Bibles opened. But I think just wanting to focus in on this one verse, verse 18, which is, of course, one of Paul's classic texts um, and uh, so fitting for the world we find ourselves in. So let's listen just to that passage as we ponder it today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Let me pray for us as we ponder this passage today. Let's pray. Our Lord, anytime we open up your word, we think about the power of your spirit and how much we need it to understand your word. So be with us now. Help us understand what it means to live in a world that regards the great news of the cross as foolishness and how we can be reminded that it's the power of God. We commit our time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, it is hard to be a Christian in today's world. You don't have to be a Christian very long to know that. Whether you've been a believer for 30 years or maybe a believer for 30 days, you know that in our world it is a tough time to be a believer. We're feeling pushed and pulled and influenced and prodded to adopt the ways of the world in so many different manners. And as we think about the challenge of living in our world today, there's one, though, of all those that perhaps stands out as one of the most challenging, one of the most difficult, and that is the way that Christianity is often mocked and ridiculed and criticized as being intellectually deficient. It's a worldview that our, our culture looks at and says, you know, it just doesn't make sense. It seems ridiculous. It's silly. It's foolishness to believe in this thing that you call Christianity. In fact, our world comes to us as believers and looks at us as Christians and says, you know, you Christians really do believe a lot of things that are just 
hard to believe. I mean, you believe an invisible God that you can't really see or empirically prove like we want to. You see and believe in a spiritual world of angels and demons. You believe in miraculous interventions. You believe that seas can be parted and axe heads can float and the sun can stop in the sky. You believe that demons can be exercised and diseases can be healed and that people can be raised from the dead. And above and beyond that, you Christians have a moral system that's, that's altogether outdated and, and antiquated and unattainable and something that our culture has left behind long time ago. And more than that, you have a moral system that's offensive and problematic and narrow-minded. And you Christians are arrogant thinking that you're right and everyone else is wrong. Now, when you hear it all laid out like that, Even sitting here on a Sunday morning, there's a side of all of us that thinks to ourselves, you know, maybe they've got a point. Maybe Christianity really is just folly. In fact, that's the struggle of the Christian in today's world. We're always reflecting on our faith, thinking, is it it really worth the the effort I've put into it? it? Is it really reliable? Can I really trust eternity on this thing we call Christianity? Now, if that's you today, and it's all of us, isn't it, to some extent, every day, if that's you today, then you find yourself in a situation very similar to the Corinthians when Paul wrote this letter. You see, if you have to know something about Corinth, Corinth fancied itself as the as really an intellectual epicenter in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't that far from Athens. They prided themselves on the latest philosophies and ideas coming their way and had a a great culture of intellectual elites that would talk about the latest, greatest ideas. That was the city of Corinth. And then something happened. The gospel came to Corinth. Paul preached in Corinth. A church started in Corinth. And this group of believers began to grow. And as they began to grow, something finally dawned on them. They looked around the city of Corinth and they basically said to the Apostle Paul, hold on, wait a second. If Christianity is true, if it's really what you say it is, how come all the intellectual elites around us here in Corinth don't think so? Why does it seem like all the smartest people we know, all those great philosophers are always talking about the latest, greatest ideas, they think Christianity is ridiculous. How is that, Paul? How, How can it be true if all the intellectual giants think it's false? That is the dilemma the Corinthians faced. And, of course, that's the dilemma that we face. How do you navigate a world where we believe something is true and the world repeatedly tells us it's not? How do we assess that? What do we do? What kind of, what kind of adjustments do we need to make in the way we live if we're going to address that kind of world? Well, Paul in this passage is going to give us some adjustments. In fact, really what he's going to do here, he's going to lay out three different ways we need to adjust our lives if we're going to make it in a world like this that's so hostile to our faith. So have your Bibles open to that passage we read moments ago. We're, of course, going to look at verse 18, but we're going to do more than that. We're going to look at some of the other verses surrounding that as well as we walk through these three adjustments that Paul wants to make. And let's just start with the very first of those adjustments. Paul wants us here to adjust our expectations. First, He wants us to adjust our expectations and be reminded that Christianity, unless God intervenes, unless the spirit moves, will always look foolish in the eyes of a non-Christian 
world. You see, Paul here in this passage knows that you and I believe something and actually live by a principle in the back of our mind that we don't even know is there. All of us do this. All of us have a principle in the back of our mind that we live by, and it goes something like this. If something's true, most people will believe it. We, ha- we have that assumption. We never thought about it. You never really pondered it. It's just an, a, just an idea you have in your head that if something's true, well, most people will believe it. And if most people believe something, we think, well, well therefore, it must be true. And we operate our lives based on that unspoken assumption. And Paul comes to us in this passage and he says, if you have that assumption in your life, if you're working off that grid, it's going to land you in a quandary. And it's exactly the quandary that the Corinthians found themselves in. If Christianity is true, then why don't most intellectual people believe it then? If most people believe things, if they're true, then they would believe Christianity, but they don't. This is one of the fundamental things that Paul wants to challenge in our life is this idea of what we expect the world to do when confronted with the truth. I get this question all the time when I travel and speak in different places and churches and uh, seminaries and universities. I'll give a lecture, and one of the most common questions I get, I didn't really get it this weekend, surprisingly, but almost get it every time I go speak, and that is simply this. If the Bible's true, then why don't most scholars believe it? That's the question. But you know what's lurking behind that question is that assumption I just brought up. People think, well, something's true, most people believe it, and so If the Bible's true, then why don't most scholars believe it? I I should be suspicious of its truth if most scholars have rejected it. And you can imagine how that lands people in a quandary if we live that way. But Paul says, hold on a second, stop right there, look down at verse 18, and be reminded of one simple fact. The word of the cross is folly, really the word foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, Paul says you need to be reminded that the non-Christian doesn't come to the Bible with sort of this blank slate idea, this sort of neutral mentality. He doesn't don the white lab coat and say, well, let me just do an impartial analysis. No, Paul says in the mind of the non-Christian, everything about Christianity in his darkened mind, in his sinful nature makes no sense at all. What were you Corinthians expecting to happen, says Paul, when the gospel goes forth? Sure, the Spirit will move when the Spirit moves. And as the Spirit moves, people believe the gospel. But until the Spirit moves, make no mistake about it. Get your expectations straight. People will think this is the most foolish thing they've ever heard. Now, what's interesting about this first point here in this passage, as Paul wants us to adjust our expectations, is that he actually bores down a little deeper into this issue for us. In other words, Paul says, let me tell you why people think the cross is foolish. And what he does in this first point is he actually breaks the whole world down into the two categories that Paul always breaks the world down into, and that is this category of Jew and Gentile or 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 Jew and Greek. And he says, let me just explain to you why not only the Jews, but also the Greeks have found this cross idea ridiculous. Notice what Paul does is he starts with the Jews in verse 23 of your passage and explains why it's a problem for them. Notice what he says. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. This word stumbling block is fascinating in the Greek. It's actually the Greek word scandalon which, as you can just hear, is, is really where our English word scandal is derived from. Paul is saying, you know, for a Jew, the cross is utterly scandalous. It's, it's offensive. It's, 
it's almost obscene to think for a Jew that God's Messiah, that his chosen one, the son of God himself, would be sent to earth to die, to be defeated, to lose. You see, in the mind of a Jew, says Paul, they expected the Messiah to be this great military conqueror. He would come in and cast off the powers of the Roman government, finally set Israel free. The the Messiah wasn't supposed to be defeated by Rome. He was supposed to defeat Rome. And yet here you have Jesus hanging on a cross, at least in the mind of the Jews, looking like he's been utterly defeated by Rome. That's not how it was supposed to go, according to the Jews. I mean, think about it for a moment. Even in Jesus' own life, His followers, the 12, who were Jews, he told them, I, as the Messiah, I'm going to go suffer and die, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Remember what Peter did. Here's Peter, the most loyal follower of Jesus around. Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer and die, Peter. And Peter's like, oh, no, that's not how it's going to go. Don't you get this Messiah thing, Jesus? You got it all wrong. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to come and supposed to cast off the Roman government and bring in the kingdom of God and set everybody free. And Peter puts his arm around Jesus and goes, let me explain how this is going to work. And Jesus says, I know you're stumbling over this, Peter, but this is not the way of God. The way of God is that the Messiah would suffer and die. Scandalous. Of course, Paul's done. He's like, what about the, what about the Greeks? What about the Gentiles? What, why are they bothered so much about it? Notice he has a word there, too, about them. Notice again, verse 23. But to those who are called, or uh, sorry, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then back up one verse in verse 22. Look what he says. Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. What are Greeks looking for in their life? What are are Gentiles after, says Paul? Well, they're, they're after this thing called wisdom, Sophia in the Greek. Which is just another way of saying the latest, greatest philosophies that sound good to them. The things that tickle their ears. The things that they find compelling and attractive. And I can tell you this, says Paul, that a crucified savior for Roman citizens is not that. It is not attractive. It's not something a Roman would want or be drawn to. You see, you had to realize that in the Roman world, crucifixion was not just a a good way to kill people. Sometimes we think that that's what it is. We think it's just a form of execution. It is a form of execution to some degree, but that's not really the ultimate point of, of crucifixion. The ultimate point of crucifixion was not death. The ultimate point of crucifixion was humiliation. It was to bring shame. It was to it was to it was to put someone up in in a place of ultimate ridicule. Or they can be mocked and derided as a criminal and as contrary to the Roman ways. To hang on a cross was not just to suffer physically. To hang on a cross was to suffer indignity and shame and humiliation. So to go to a Roman and say, hey, I got this great new religion called Christianity and it's about a guy who died on a cross. You're like, are you kidding me? That's not something we want to follow. In fact, not long ago in a archaeological excavation outside of the city of Rome. I get to read about these things in my world from time to time. It's interesting. They they discovered an ancient Roman wall just outside the city of Rome. And they dated it to about the second century. And the archaeologists on this Roman wall began to peel back the layers. And they found out there was was writing on the wall, what, what we would call graffiti. And in case you thought that that's only something that modern people did, think again, right? 
People have been writing on walls for thousands of years. And on this particular wall, they found that someone had drawn a picture of a man hanging on a cross. And the picture of the man hanging on the cross had the head of a donkey. And then beneath the cross was another man kneeling down and worshiping him. And then someone had written in Greek on the wall, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos is just the Greek name Alex. And someone here ridiculing this person, Alexamenos, said, look at, look at Alex worshiping his crucified God. He puts a head of a donkey on there to mock him and ridicule him. How silly, how crazy is this? And that Roman wall captures exactly what Paul is getting at here. Don't you realize that Greeks aren't going to on their own find this to be compelling because everything in them runs against what the cross stands for. Think about it for a moment. What if a person were to create their own religion? What do, you, what do you think it would look like? If someone were to create their own religion, it's hard to know whether there would even be a God, but maybe there would. If someone were to create their own religion, it would probably be a God who's distant and fairly uninvolved. If people were to create their own religion, it would be a God who's sort of a big, sort of lovable teddy bear in the sky and is never bothered by much of anything and just wants you to live whatever lifestyle you want. If people were to create a religion, there would be no thing like sin or judgment or wrath or hell. If people were to create a religion, there wouldn't be any saving to be done. And if there was any saving to be done, it'd be really man saving himself and not God saving man. If man were to create a religion, says Paul, it wouldn't look anything like Christianity. And yet you're surprised that people reject it. Here's the thing I want you to realize in this first point today, and it's very basic. It's very simple. And that is, Paul wants us to realize that the rejection of Christianity by our world has nothing to do with whether it's true. Nothing. In fact, on the contrary, Paul wants to say that it can absolutely be true and is true despite how it's rejected. Now, of course, I've laid out how our world thinks of the cross. Some here this morning might think of the cross in the same way. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you don't even know how you got here. You're here as a guest or a friend or a visitor. Maybe even you're a member. But as you think about the cross, you find it to be ridiculous and foolish. Paul comes to all of us today and says it may look foolish, but it is the power of God unto salvation, and you need the Spirit to help You see that. Don't think for a moment that it's rejection by the world has anything to do with whether it's true. Now, that leads to a second thing that Paul wants to get at here in this passage this morning. A second, if you will, adjustment beyond adjusting our expectations. And that is, secondly, Paul wants us to adjust our minds. Wants to adjust the way we think. He wants us to realize something that we might have forgotten that would be all too easy to forget in a world that peppers us with objections all the time. And that is that Paul wants us to adjust our thinking and be reminded that it's not Christianity that's foolish. It's actually non-Christian thinking, the philosophical wisdoms of the day, that are actually foolish. You see, Paul recognizes something that's a danger here. As soon as in verse 18 he makes the statement that the cross is foolishness or that it's folly, he realizes there's some people in his audience that may misunderstand what he's saying and think to themselves that Christianity is really 
foolish, that it's really ridiculous, that it, that it really makes no sense, as if there's the possibility of being someone in the congregation that, that Paul wrote to that could say to themselves, okay, well, I, well, I guess I have a, a, a silly religion here. I guess it's a foolish religion. I guess it doesn't make any sense. I guess it's got no real cognitive sophistication, but I guess it's all I have, so I'm just going to bear with it and just own this foolish religion. And Paul says, hold, hold on a second. Is that what you thought I was saying? I'm not, I'm not saying, says Paul, that Christianity is actually foolish. I'm just saying it looks foolish. And so there's actually a paradox going on here. Christianity looks foolish in the eyes of the world. But what Paul's getting ready to say here in the second point is actually it's non-Christian thinking that ends up being foolish. It's actually the rejection of the gospel that actually spirals someone down into an irrational life. And Paul wants to remind us that Christianity makes sense. It fits together. It's cognitively defensible. It's a religion of rationality. It's not at all foolish, even though the world thinks it is. So here's what we realize is that Paul is tackling here uh, a strain in Christianity in his day that still exists in our day. And it's something we need to hear from Paul because there's a strain of Christianity in the world today that's sort of got this anti-intellectual feel to it. And what that strain looks like is something like this. A person's trying to live their Christian life and they're getting beat down and battered by the world and all these accusations about the problems with Christianity. And the reaction is, well, look, I don't know how to deal with all these accusations and I don't know how to to deal with all these intellectual challenges. So I'm just going to sort of turn my Christianity into this private, personal, experiential religion. It doesn't really matter if it makes sense. It doesn't even really matter if it's true out there. It doesn't matter if it's defensible. All that matters is I have this wonderful, private, emotional experience with God, and that's all religion can be anyway, and so that's what I'm going to stick with, and that's what Christianity is. Paul's like, hold on a second. There is a sense in which Christianity has an experiential component to it. There is a sense in which there's an emotional aspect to our Christian faith, of course. But there's also a sense in which there's an intellectual half. And it's an intellectual half that's robust, says Paul. It makes sense. It's rigorous. You can be encouraged and lifted up in your faith, not just because you have an experience with God, but because it's true. Paul wants us to realize then under the second heading that Christianity is not at all foolish. It makes really good sense of the world. In fact, it's non-Christian thinking that fundamentally suffers from intellectual problems. There's so much that can be said under the second point this morning, but let's just get down to the nuts and bolts of it. What is Paul's big complaint here about non-Christian thinking? And what is it exactly that Paul looks at here that shows him that non-Christian thinking isn't uh, up to the challenge, if you will? And if we're going to boil all the things down here in this this, uh, section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's big complaint is simply this. Non-Christian thinking at the end of the day is wholly dependent, 100% dependent on human wisdom. Human wisdom is all you get with non-Christian thinking. Not just human wisdom, but finite, fallible, fallen human brains is all you're left with. That's exactly what he goes on to do here. He says, look, I'll take any of your great philosophers and pit them up against the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God trumps the wisdom of men every single point along the way. Look what Paul does here in verse uh, 19. 
citing here Isaiah 29, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then verse 20, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Look at this next line. Has not God made foolish their wisdom, the wisdom of the world? Notice how the tables are being turned here. Paul's like, oh yeah, Christianity looks foolish in the eyes of the world. But then when you put God up against these philosophers you're so impressed with, God is going to make them look foolish. It's actually they who suffer, if you will, from all kinds of intellectual problems. And what I love what Paul does here in verse 20 is it's sort of throwing down the gauntlet. Paul's like, well, just bring them all on. All all your best scholars, all your best thinkers, all your best scribes, bring them up, line them up, compare them to the wisdom of God, and all of them will fall short. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that, look, let me get this straight, you Corinthians. You've got God's word on one side that you can trust, and then you've got finite, fallible, fallen human philosophers on the other side, and you're, you're thinking they're wiser? You think they're more trustworthy? I'll put God up against any of them, and God is going to come out on top. Now, to drive this home, to really get the point Paul's making here, it might be helpful to put it in a practical context. I want you to think for a moment about the last conversation you had with your non-Christian friend. Just kind of put that in your mind for a moment. It could be maybe a family member, a neighbor, coworker, roommate, whatever it happens to be. And I want you to think back to the conversation, and I want you to realize and remember how many grand, sweeping truth claims that your non-Christian friend made during that conversation. In fact, it's amazing when you think about the grand sweeping truth claims that most non-Christians make in a conversation. You may never even noticed them before. It may never even dawned on you that those are being made. But if you notice that your non-Christian friend makes statements about whether God exists or whether he doesn't exist, what God is like, what God would do or wouldn't do, what God approves of, what God doesn't approve on, how a person's saved, how a person's not saved, what eternity is like, what heaven is like, how you get there, how you don't get there. All these things are listed out by your non-Christian friend as he makes grand sweeping truth claims. And the question that Paul would ask that person, the question that we should be asking that person is how do you know any of that? How do you know what God is like or not like? How do you know what he would do or not do? How do you know what God prefers or doesn't prefer? What he approves of or doesn't approve of? All you have, says Paul, is your finite, fallen human mind. That's it. Whereas for Christians, we have the very inspired word of God itself. Now, of course, our non-Christian friend will say, well, I don't believe the word of God. So therefore, that's a mute point. But it's not a mute point. Here's why. It doesn't matter whether our non-Christian friend believes the Bible is the word of God. The question is, which worldview, ours or theirs, has some basis for making grand sweeping truth claims? At least our worldview purports to have divine revelation where you can make such claims. Whereas the non-Christian is making such claims with no basis at all other than his finite, fallen human brain. And Paul says, you want to talk about arrogance. You want to talk about dogmatism. You want to talk about someone speaking beyond what they can speak to. That's foolishness. What's the Christian doing? Simply depending on what God has revealed in his word. That may look like foolishness in the eyes of the world, but it actually makes so much more sense. It makes so much more sense because how could you ever know about all those things unless God revealed it to you? 
How would you know about what God is like and what he prefers or doesn't prefer or what he would do and not do unless God revealed it to you? In other words, Paul is saying, what's more foolish, depend on these human philosophers or on God's own word? Here's the thing. Some of you may be here this morning and you may be uh, sort of one of those intellectual questers. You, you, you fancy yourself as a searcher on an intellectual quest to find out what's true in the world. And so you analyze things and you go to churches and you listen to people talk and you read books. And by golly, you're out to find the truth. And everything that comes along, you either approve or don't approve of it or you like it or don't or you say yes and no and so on. Paul will come to you and challenge you today and say, look, if your quest for intellectual truth is based solely on your own brain and what you're accepting or not accepting based on your own understanding of the world, you're never going to find truth. Ultimately, truth is an exercise of dependence. It's not an exercise of independence where we go off and find it ourselves. Truth is turning back to and relying on the source of truth. Namely, God himself revealed in his word. Paul's not done, though. He's got one more thing to say to us. Let's turn our attention now to the third adjustment he wants to make. He First, he adjusted our expectations, and then secondly, he adjusts our, our minds, reminding us that actually it's, it's non-Christian thinking that's foolish, and Christianity makes a lot of sense. And now, finally, he wants to make a third adjustment. Namely, he wants to adjust our attitudes. Our attitudes. He wants us to be reminded that Christianity, when understood correctly, actually leads to intellectual humility. Intellectual humility. Let me explain what I mean by this. You see, Paul realizes there's a danger in his audience, another misconception that's possible. As soon as you tell an audience that it's non-Christian thinking that's foolish and it's Christianity that makes a lot of sense, he knows there's some in his audience that might start to swell up with a little bit of intellectual pride. Some in his audience that might say to themselves, well, you know, we Christians, we're just, we're just smarter than everybody else. And the reason that I'm a Christian is because I was just a little brighter than the next guy. And that I figured this out on my own. And if, if only they were a little bit more intellectually sophisticated, maybe they could be Christians too. And there's a sense in which Paul recognizes that one of the real dangers here is intellectual pride that can seep in. As someone begins to take sort of ownership and confidence over the truth that they have, because in fact it is true. And Paul says, stop right there. You haven't heard a thing I've said, says Paul. Of course it's true. And of course non-Christian thinking is foolish. But don't think for a moment, you Corinthians, that you're a Christian because you're smarter than other people. Don't think for a moment that you're a believer because you're just, you know, brighter than the next guy. No, you're a Christian today, says Paul, purely by the grace and mercy of God poured out on you. Paul says this in so many different ways in the passage. If you look down at verse uh, 30, he really gets that at the very end of this section. Look at this very first phrase. It's very simple, but he says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of him, because of God's work in your life, you're in Christ Jesus. Not about you, not about you figuring it out, not about your own intellectual abilities, because of the grace and mercy of God to open your eyes. Elsewhere, Paul makes this point even more pointedly. In fact, in my opinion, rather humorously, when he says to the Corinthians, you know how I know that it's by grace and not by how smart you are? It's because you Corinthians are not very smart. Look what he says in verse 26. Paul, just right between the eyes, 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise. Boom, right? Right there. Not many of you are smart. Not many of you are sophisticated. You didn't have noble births with all the education that came with it. But yet you believe the truth. Why? Because God has showered his grace and mercy on you to open your eyes. Don't for a moment take intellectual pride in being a Christian. Now, if Paul's right here, then he's done something stunning. In fact, he's done something unprecedented. He's done something that you might even call uh, sort of groundbreaking. If Paul's right, and we believe he is, then, then what he's telling us is that you can be absolutely certain and absolutely humble at the same time. You can be absolutely certain of the truth of Christianity and absolutely humble at the same time. Why is that so groundbreaking? Because our world says it's impossible. Ever notice how our world defines humility? Our world defines humility as uncertainty. To be humble in our world is to walk around going, well, I don't know, and who can know, and no one knows, and I'm uncertain. That's the world's definition of humility, which is precisely why they regard Christians as arrogant, because they have a definition of humility that's not a biblical definition of humility. Don't take the bait on that. The definition of humility is not uncertainty. If Paul is right, you can be absolutely certain of the truth of Christianity. Why? Because God revealed it. And you can be absolutely humble about the truth of Christianity. Why? Because God revealed it by his grace. It's only when you realize that God has revealed it to you by his grace that you're certain. And it's only then that you're humble. That is the posture that you enter into a a, a world with that, that doesn't believe Christianity, not a posture of uncertainty. You should go out in the world absolutely convinced, but absolutely humble because God showered his grace upon you. We're not Christians because we're smarter. We're not more intellectually sophisticated. We are merely the recipients of grace. But it's absolutely, certainly true. You know what's great about that? Once you realize that that's the way it works, that's going to change the way you think about witnessing to your non-Christian friend. Ever been in a conversation with your non-Christian friend where you think to yourself, if I say what I'm getting ready to say, they're going to get really upset. If I say what Christianity says about that, or if I say this truth about God and salvation, that's going to really bother them. And you have that thought in your mind, and then you think to yourself for a moment, well, maybe I can find a better way to say it. Maybe I can find a way to sort of make this message a little less offensive. Maybe I can find a way to tweak the message a little bit, sort of, you know, make a few adjustments, kind of improve it, help it be more easily received by the world, maybe not as problematic. You know, I'm going to help God out here and I'm going to try to find a way to make this just sound a little better than he's made it sound. When we think that way, we've missed the point entirely because it doesn't matter how we present the truth as far as whether people receive it. What matters is God working by his spirit. God asks us not to tweak the message, to improve the message, to change the message. He asks us merely to deliver the message faithfully, to not try to make it more palatable, to make it more exciting, but rather to be a faithful deliverer of the message and let the spirit work where the spirit 
will work. Let me challenge us today as we think about talking to the world to not be so concerned about the reaction we might get, but more concerned about honoring the God whose message we're delivering. And knowing that sometimes faithful, bold delivering of the message, although initially getting a negative reaction, is actually how the gospel goes forward as the Spirit pricks hearts and draws people to himself. You know, as we draw this to a close, these three things really hang together. We need to get our expectations straight, certainly, if we're going to live in this world. We need to get our minds straight and realize that non-Christian thinking is going to lead to all kinds of intellectual futility unless you think dependently on God. And then thirdly, as we've seen, we need to recover the proper balance between certainty and humility, realizing you can have both. That Roman wall that I mentioned a minute ago, what's interesting about it is they kept uncovering parts of it. And you recall the first part of that graffiti said, oh, Alexa Menos worships his God, how ridiculous. But then someone else wrote on that wall too. And as they uncovered it in the excavations, they realized someone had actually written a response to the first comment. The first comment, Alexa Menos worships his God, how ridiculous. And the response, written by another person in Greek, said, Alexa Menos is faithful. Alexa Menos is faithful. That is what God is calling us to be today. He doesn't call us all to go get PhDs. doesn't call us all to have every answer that needs to be given. He doesn't call us all to be the brightest minds. But he does call us to be faithful. May we be faithful, remembering that although the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, to the very power of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we're grateful for a message that's absolutely true. And Lord, we're grateful for your mercy and your grace that help us see that it's true. Or may we be faithful, faithful like Alexa Menos, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of mocking, proclaiming a crucified Messiah, folly to the world, but the very power of God. We pray this in Christ's name.